Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. It is your local community radio station you are tuned into, broadcasting on Jagera and Turable lands here. And my name's Andy, and I'll be hanging out with you on your radio for the next hour. And today on the show, I have a chat that I had earlier in the week with Richard King. He is an author. He's just written a new book called Here Be Monsters, which is about uh, techno-criticism, we'll say. Uh, um, he casts a look at the many different ways, I guess, that technological progress is being done in our society and being done in, in some ways uncritically, and he reaches into political thinking but also philosophical thinking to um, question whether this is the direction we want to be heading in. And I have to say, I think this is a very vital topic for us to be grappling with at this particular point in history. I've done a few shows on it in the paradigm shift in the last couple of years, and I will continue to because I think, number one, I, I am a techno-critic myself. I think that we should think carefully about what each new technological innovation does in what positive and negative effects it has. But also, more importantly, is that we should do it consciously. And I think too often that there's a, a underlying ideology in our society about technological progress being good. And a large part of the reason that ideology holds so strongly is that um, technological progress makes money often for people who own the technology. And so that's what governs a lot of the time this. And so I think we should be looking critically at the assumptions in uh, these kind of ideas which we often take on ourselves and that technology technology does change humans as well as um, humans creating new technology. We, we're not immovable when it comes to this. We, we shift as uh, the tools that we use shift. So anyway, that's what's coming up for the next hour. It's a long chat. We cover a lot of different topics. So stick around um, and I will get into it. My name's Richard King. I'm a journalist and author based in Fremantle, Western Australia, uh, write for various rags and mags. And you've just written a new book called Here Be Monsters. Can you tell us what this book's about? Sure. It's, um, it's an attempt to 
uh, think about how um, technology in general, but uh, new and emerging technologies in particular, are affecting us in our in our deepest being, if you like, if in at, at the level of our social lives, at the level of our creative lives, and at the level of our physical lives. So there's a lot of chatter around uh, about technology at the moment, but um, what I wanted to do in this book was to uh, delve down in a, a deep into into how these um, new emerging and, and often very transformative technologies might be um, affecting us. I think the discourse around artificial intelligence and cybernetics and things like that has gone up a notch this year since the launch of ChatGPT, but I assume this book's been a bit longer in the working than that? Yes, absolutely it has, and uh, I'm, of course, very interested in the uh, reaction to ChatGPT, which which is a remarkable um, new technology. I mean, it uh, as anyone who's uh, ever used it will know, it leaves uh, the Turing test um, decisively in the rearview mirror, uh, the Turing test being the uh, idea that a machine can be deemed intelligent if the person interacting with it can't tell whether it's a machine or not. I mean, that, that, uh, that threshold at least has been decisively uh, breached. Um, nevertheless, I do think that there is uh, a tendency when we're looking at these new technologies to sort of, um, you know, translate them back into the language that we already know. So there's been a lot of talk about accuracy and bias and toxicity and all this sort of stuff. And that those are important questions to ask. But I think the bigger question for me or the bigger issue for me goes to the fact that ChatGPT and its equivalents, you know, Google Bard, things like that, represent yet another encroachment on human agency and if you believe as i believe that human agency the the ability to have an effect on the world you know get actually to do something meaningful is essential to your freedom then um that's potentially quite a big problem though and the problem for me is that we are ever more immersed in this world of smart machines and the world is becoming what's sometimes called a, by the tech bros a black box that's to say you know it has inputs you know it has outputs you know that it works but you don't know how it works and not having to go through the process now of say having to write an essay means that we are ever more distanced from the things which i think make us fully human yeah, there's a fantastic quote in one of your articles in Arena that I'd never heard it before, but it's 50 years old from psychologist Eric Fromm who said that aspiring to make robots like humans becomes a lot easier once humans are more like robots. Yeah, that's a great quote, isn't it? And and as you say, 50 years old. So one of the things I wanted to do uh, in the book was to sort of blow the dust off what I call the techno-critical uh, tradition, which is a way of thinking about technology um, that goes beyond the sort of Silicon Valley way of thinking about it, which is often described as a sort of instrumental view. That That's to say, technologies themselves have no kind of moral or political content. They just kind of lie there and you can use them in good ways or you can use them in bad ways. But that's not actually what happens uh, with uh, the relationship between Homo sapiens and technology. What happens is that technologies both shape and are shaped by 
the cultures into which they emerge. And what's happened, I would say, generally, and as Eric from uh, noticed quite early on in the uh, in in the piece, is that we're becoming far more like the machines. You know, we're becoming more far more like the machines, and the machines are becoming like us. I don't think there's any sense in which you know things like ChatGPT, any meaningful sense anyway, um, are thinking like us. They're not sentient. Uh, the danger is that uh, we come to see ourselves as no different in kind from no different in principle from these smart machines and and use that as a sort of basis from which to start you know sort of interfering with our own uh, brains and bodies in a way that again isn't necessarily uh, helpful over the long term to our freedom and our flourishing yeah there's a sense when it comes to these AI technology something like chat gp is very new and novel and so it gets people talking about what the future might be like as ai continues to develop but the reality is that actually ai software is already extremely influential in our society if you use online platforms then ai is dictating so much of what you see and then there's a sort of uh, analytics, data analytics side of things that um, runs a lot of business around us and uh, does a lot with our money, you know, that's invested in different places. And in the even in the military, AI already is heavily used. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Andy. And and that's what I, that's the point I kind of like, you know, people to take on board with regard to the the conversation that's going on now with Sam Altman and people like that. You know, sort of. The, the Silicon Valley black skivvied uh, tech bros who are sort of wetting themselves in public. The catastrophe is not coming down the road. The catastrophe is, uh, is unfolding as we speak. So all communication technologies connect human beings. That's what a, you know, communication technology is. But they also disconnect human beings. That's the, that's the sort of the contradiction, if you like, implicit in them. And what's happened now in this world of smart machines and certainly smart communication technologies is that you have a world in which um, a social creature, which is, you know, human beings, um, whose, whose ways of being social evolved in conditions of physical presence, now has, a, now has a kind of sociality, if I can use that slightly technical phrase, that's based in these conditions of absence. And what social media does is to give us back the thing that we lack, but it does it in morbid form. So um, social media may sound obvious to say, but social media works because we're social creatures. But it's not the kind of sociality that we need in order to be healthy, you know, productive members of society. When you you mentioned as well um, AIs in the military space, well, there, war, you know, generally speaking, uh, you know, even if it's only sort of uh, a bit of a a, a bit mythical has always been kind of based on the idea of warrior's honor and this kind of thing and what weaponry has produced as history has gone on are are machines that can again like the communication technologies distance human beings from one another now you have machines that don't need any piloting um, or any control at all uh, they can just seek out their own um, uh, targets on the basis of what they look like, where they are, who they're associated with, etc., etc. And, and, you know, we've gone all the way to a situation in which, you know, we have completely removed ourselves, so to speak, from the field. 
Um, so that, that is the kind of thing that I'm trying to, to think about and encourage other people to think about as well. There is a term that gets thrown around a bit at the moment and you use it in your own writing to describe a sort of the times that we're living in and this term is post-humanism. Do you want to explain to us a bit about what post-humanism means and its implications? Yeah, yeah sure. So the, the biggest danger, um, and one can sound a little hysterical talking like this, but there are certain ways, there are certain senses in which it's happening already. The biggest danger, Andy, is that, you know, for a number of reasons, you know, for political and economic reasons, you create societies that, that, that human beings don't do terribly well in. I, I, I'd argue as a person of the left that, you know, we're already on that path and that, you know, the spikes you see in depression and anxiety and that kind of thing are evidence that we're, that we're creating uh, societies that in many ways, you know, um, uh, are, ill-suited, if you like, to our deepest um, needs. The danger of new transformative technologies is that rather than trying to change uh, society, try, rather than trying to innovate socially and politically such that you create societies that can you know, engender happier human beings, the danger of new technologies is that you just change the human beings such that they can fit into the society. Now, as I say, there are all kinds of you know, uh, book, you know, Brave New World would be the obvious example. Brave New World being Huxley's uh, novel from the 1930s in which people are uh, sort of molded through eugenics and psychotropic medication in order to make them happy and, and, and well suited to their position in, in the economy or whatever it happens to be. Obviously, we're not at that point, but there are ways in which this, you know, this uh, dynamic is beginning to emerge already. So if you think, for example, about the overprescription, as I regard it, of um, antidepressants for, you know, conditions that are fairly obviously reactive, you know, kids getting, you know, strung out because they've got too much to do or because education, you know, the way in which things are taught just seems meaningless to them and they, they feel that they're not guaranteed a job or a house or any of that kind of stuff. If you think about that, that's it's the same dynamic kind of, you know, um, in action. So, um, the idea of post-humanism, I mean, I mean, some people welcome the idea that human beings could recreate themselves, um, such that they could almost sort of escape their bodies and download their minds onto these smart machines and stuff. Uh, I think that's nonsense, but the idea that it's possible, uh, will license and may already be licensing interventions which are dangerous which are uh, counterproductive and um which just set us or 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 keep us on the wrong path oh uh, yeah you said just there it will or may already and i guess that's an interesting thing to tease out when we talk about post-humanism how much are we talking about the future and how much are we talking about the era that we live in right now i don't think so so just for a couple of terms, you know, to clarify a couple of terms, that you've got your transhumanists who are people that, so transhumanism is, is very, very popular in Silicon Valley. And you've got the chief engineer at uh, Google, Ray Kurzweil, um, who believes, absolutely believes as to, as indeed to many people in Silicon Valley, that human beings are destined to leave their bodies and there'll be a sort of singularity moment in which uh, smart machines become so smart that they'll just take over the world and um, 
<clears throat> and that would be good or it'd be bad, but it, it'll just be inevitable. So that's transhumanism, and that's got a long lineage. It goes right back, well, at least to the 1930s, um, where you've got people talking about eugenics as a way to improve the human stock, if you like. Uh, funnily enough, it was Aldous Huxley's brother who kind of started the movement. And it's kind of a, an extension of humanism, which is the idea that, or one of the ideas of which is that you should use science in order to improve um, uh, humanity's chances, if you like. And then you've got post-humanism. And post-humanism is more of an academic thing about uh, whether or not, we, you know, we are in a kind of post-human um, kind of environment uh, now and whether or not we should kind of just embrace the fact that we're we're all cyborgs now and all this sort of thing. Uh, I'm committed to the idea that, no, we're not in a post-human uh, world. We're very much in a human one. It's just that the humans in it aren't always doing particularly well. And I don't think we're heading in the right direction overall. So, no, I, I, I think you could sort of label certain sort of trends um, or currents within university as post-human, but I don't think we're we're in any sense post-human. The thing about human beings is that they are remarkably adaptable. It is in our nature to have a culture, and culture takes a billion different forms. But some forms of culture are more conducive, I would argue, to human flourishing than others. And uh, what you want to do, ideally, is to build societies in which human beings do well, not to try and change human beings such that they do better, in the societies that you happen to have built. You mentioned earlier antidepressants as an example of a kind of a technological intervention into human biological processes. And there's probably other examples of that as well. But one of the things I'm really conscious of where you see this is when talking about the environment and climate change in particular, which I see as this example of technological overreach into biological limits right that our human technologies have are not compatible with the earth's limits but at a very high level a lot of the solutions being discussed are about geoengineering like these further technological interventions and i think this is representative of a worldview that is prevalent now and i I think there's probably other examples too and this is something that you've written about isn't it Yes, yes, I have, Andy, and there's um, a chapter on it in the book as well. I think you're absolutely right. Um, You know, there are a couple of ways in which you can kind of face climate change, I think. You can take a kind of technological solutionist kind of approach and you can say, right, okay, so at the kind of weekend of the scale, you'll have, you know, Green New Deals and stuff like that. So the idea here is that you, you keep the economic system as it is, social and economic system as it is, broadly speaking, but you swap in green or clean uh, technologies for the dirty ones, okay? So that, those kind of Green New Deals have found favour in Europe and the United States, and up to a certain point, I support that, of course. At the other end of the kind of solutionist technological spectrum, you've got stuff, and you mentioned it just then, like geoengineering, where people are talking about, and talking seriously, Andy, as well, about, you know, just firing sulfate aerosols into um, the stratosphere in order to mimic the dimming effect of catastrophic volcanoes such that less radiation from the sun gets trapped in the greenhouse gases so we would just 
literally kind of greenhouse ourselves. Now, apart from all the kind of practical ways in which that could go wrong, I think it's pretty stupid to think that uh, one could uh, do something like that and then, you know, remain in some kind of healthy <laughs> relationship with, the, with nature overall and, uh, you know, have a healthy idea of one's place within it. I think that what we need, as well as technological uh, innovation, of course, is social and political innovation, such that we get away from the growth model and then get away from the profit model and start to think about, yes, ways in which, you know, say 3D printing or renewable energy and all these kinds of things can be marbled into society in more productive ways, but also, you know, um, think about working less and consuming less and um, having a different focus within our lives than, than the one that we've currently got, which is, you know, basically a kind of 40, 50 hour a week at work, which allows you to just about get by. So yeah, so there's some there's a sense in which that kind of technological um, solutionism is 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 coming into play now in a really really kind of big way. So, you know, it's not only the the sulfates example. So they talk about sort of pumping um, iron filings or something into into the ocean and all this sort of stuff. I think uh, you know there's sort of spraying seawater in order to uh, create cloud cover that's perhaps not quite so sinister but yes but there are all these kind of schemes uh as you know many of which emerged needless to say out of silicon valley for kind of uh, re-engineering the environment such that you, you'd have to get it right and if you got it wrong it would be terrible but i think in a way if you got it right it would be terrible too in the sense that you know that would be it you, there would be no more you just have to keep on doing it um and serious prospect now, what you said just there, I think, touches on a theme that's in a lot of your writing, that there's political questions about technology and uh, who it serves and things like that, and I'd like to come back to them, but also that there are philosophical questions that need to be addressed about how we use technology and what it means to live a good life and things like that. Mm. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. There are philosophical questions. Yeah. I mean, you know, to a great extent, um, the techno critical, uh, tradition, as I, um, describe it, is a, is a tradition of philosophers, not only philosophers, but certainly there are plenty of philosophers in it. And you go right back to, um, Socrates, you know, I mean, Socrates is often, <laughs> he's often kind of trotted out, uh, and sort of mocked by tech utopians or, or technological optimists as someone who, you know, is, a uh, fairly hilarious example of, you know, people like me who have questions about technology because Socrates was against the technology and it is a technology of symbolic language. He didn't like writing and he didn't write anything down. And there's an irony here, of course, because we wouldn't know uh, that he was against writing unless somebody had written that down. So big ups to um, uh, Plato and Xenophon for like kind of following him around and committing everything he said to their little wax tablets. But Actually, I don't think he deserves to be mocked because um, he was right about writing um, in some ways. He said, for example, that writing would cause the memory to atrophy, and it does cause the memory to atrophy. As anyone who has made even a cursory study of preliterate societies knows, you know, they, uh, often traditional cultures will have very complex and elaborate ways of committing things to memory. Okay, he also said that it writing things down in the form of a book, which people then read and reproduced, etc., 
uh, was uh, an inferior way of doing philosophy than uh, his method, which was literally wandering around the Agora, the marketplace in ancient Athens, and arguing with his students uh, face to face. And uh, I don't know m many educators who would disagree with that. Certainly I wouldn't. But whether he was right and whether he was wrong, and of course we get lots of things from writing that we wouldn't have otherwise. I'm not going to take against it because I'm trying to flog a book after all. Um, whether he was right or whether he was wrong, he was asking the right questions. And for me, it is the right philosophical question, which is, what does this technology give us and what does it take away from us? And if you're going to ask that question, then you have to ask a second question, which is, what do I mean by us? What is it that we need? in order to be free and to flourish as human beings? That's a philosophical question, so you're quite right uh, to say that um, philosophy is absolutely at the centre of the of the book. Here on the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ, we are talking about technology and um, those of us who are caught along on the ride of technological progress and whether um, we're doing so consciously or whether we're being dragged along by uh, forces bigger than us. And I'm going to keep going with the interview, but before I get into this next section, I do just want to uh, flag something that as part of um, critiquing a, a technological worldview here and, um, and, and what it looks like in practice, a couple of the things that we uh, talk about here are things that, you know, may affect people personally and there's somewhat controversial topics. One which isn't very controversial is uh, talking about the rising rates of ADHD diagnosis and medication. But uh, that's coming up. But also, one of the other things that Richard sort of discusses is, I guess, gender fluidity and a, a trans-positive worldview, which is a good thing, but the way that it interplays with uh, ch changing technologies and the underlying ideologies. So, if you don't want to hear those things discussed, that's okay. Maybe turn the radio off for the next 10 minutes or so. But um, uh, certainly, here at Triple Z, we are very affirming of trans people and there's so many amazing trans people at the station who contribute so long so much as well as in brisbane so i just want to put that out there before we get into this next bit but anyway we'll go back to listening to richard king and there's also as i said before questions of power and for instance when we talk about artificial intelligence what it does is respond to prompts so the question we have to ask is whose prompts you know, who is directing this technology and to what purpose does it serve? And again, in your article in Arena, you have these quotes from a U.S. National Science Department about using technology to create an ideal society, and it's terrifying. <laughs> and I think with Silicon Valley as well, where we've got these corporations uh, receiving huge amounts of money to develop this rapidly advancing software, we really need to ask this question of, who is making this and what purpose does it serve? Yeah, absolutely. They, they want us to kind of draw a line, you know, or you know, kind of rule off the whole notion of politics. I mean, they'll say, well, th this is progress, this is development. But the question is progress towards what? It's, it's only more of the same in the sense that what we've got now is technologies um, that are both emerged from and... Um, therefore reproduce the values that we have uh, at present and the values that we have at present are to do with growth and development and those kinds of things. I mean, 
if you don't hold with those values, then you would want to see a different kind of technology and a different uh, relationship with it. So yes, what what is this ideal society? What what on earth are they talking about? You know, you see this. It's I mean, it's kind of everywhere. But they'll have a new bio, biotechnology or something like that, and then they'll and there'll be a lot of health washing toward you know towards the beginning of the process. So you'll say, look, uh, this will you know, and sometimes it's not it's not bullshit, right? You know, uh, they'll say, well, this con- this has the potential to cure this condition or something like that, and that's fantastic. That's great. You know, but that's not why it's being developed, or that's not how the company ultimately is going to make its money. If you look at the way in which, you know, pre-implantation screening in the US, for example, has now become big business, you can go to these uh, these clinics and you can pick your child's eye color or sex. And, you know, that, that's only going to uh, happen more and more as we go on. See, that's not an ideal society. You may have an ideal view of what what the kind of ideal human being looks like at present, but that's a historical and a social phenomenon. So, yeah, I mean, when they talk about building the ideal society, you sort of think, well, I, I sort of think, you know, what on earth are you talking about? You know, what, who, whose ideal is this and who shares it and where do they meet and who pays for the lunch? <laughs> Yeah, and when it comes to the Silicon Valley corporations that are developing it, it's quite easy to point at these companies and say, well, they hold uh, extreme individualist and free market ideology that's reproduced in the technology. But then an interesting thing that you point out is that where you might expect the left, which traditionally has a more a collective and egalitarian idea of social life, um, you would expect opposition to come from that. But actually, in contemporary politics, the progressive or, as you call it, the knowledge class often actually supports these technologies and these same ideologies in ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Yeah, this is really interesting. So, And this, uh, this is one of my kind of um, roots into the book, in the way or into the process of writing it because it was it was after it's going back a bit but it was after the global debt crisis of 2008-9 that there was that there was a lot of optimism around on the left about um you know kind of a post-capitalist society and 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 the use of new technologies zero marginal cost technologies they're sometimes called uh which just means that um you can reproduce stuff for free um, so, you know, solar power would be an obvious example. Okay. Uh, but also, you know, data, which can be used by everyone all of the time is, uh, the cost of that, uh, reduces to zero quite quickly if you don't have monopolies, um, which is why you do have monopolies. Uh, so there was a lot of interesting thought around that. And, um, I shared some of that enthusiasm. Uh, but it was obvious as well that they were really exaggerating, I think, the potential of these, or the liberatory, um, potential of these new technologies. And at the same time, uh, was getting close to the, uh, people at Arena, which you've mentioned a couple of times. That's a cooperative in Melbourne that's been around since the 1960s and thinks about technology and other things from a solidly kind of socialist, uh, position. Um, and there is, there are all kinds of sort of interesting currents on the left that yes, uh, um, we certainly at Arena would be uh, very critical of and, and and skeptical about. So, for example, you got 
this is not a huge number of people probably but you know sort of um, fully automated luxury communism which is the idea that you can sort of use technologies to to build a kind of uh, perfect society i mean i, d- I don't think that's going to happen and i don't think it's a serious proposition but the problem with it as a way of thinking is that they they're not thinking deeply enough about what you know what effect the the technology has is having and where it's come from they seem to think that it's just a question of ownership and that if you take if you take control of this technology then it's all good um but more broadly there is sort of a lot of knowledge class um progressive um sympathy for you know uh, i'm afraid we we do have some very you know difficult conversations ahead of us but for things like trans activism and things like that where people are sort of saying well some people are in the wrong body and and so therefore they can change themselves and this is to say nothing about trans people themselves trans identity is real uh, but um there is a lot of kind of just sort of automatic sympathy for that because it's about identity and it's about liberation it's about becoming what you really are and all these kinds of things but all of these are really you know really deserve to be um interrogated a little bit more i think if i can say that without sounding like a complete sod yeah i think there's a tension there that you've pointed out that we do want to support people to become the people they believe they are and to live life to their full potential but at the same time we should be able to uh look critically at the world we have and at the ideas that are influencing our society and the ideology behind certain um, practices of, say, bodily alteration um, and critique the ideas in it. And it may be that you critique it and then decide, well, the idea holds, but still that ideas can be up for questioning. Yeah, 100%. And it's no coincidence that, you know, one of the one of the sectors that's kind of most in favour of these uh, of such interventions is the, is the Silicon Valley sector. You know, I mean, it, it's broader than that than the trans stuff. And I mean, this is just one case where the kind of rubber is hitting the road, I think. But you know, if you look in Silicon Valley more broadly, there's there's so much interest now in kind of what we call biohacking technologies. I mean, all of these young men wearing what do they call them, Aura smart rings in order to measure their sleep patterns and paying God knows what for a, for a litre of adolescent plasma uh, in order to ward off multiple sclerosis or, or whatever and, you know, injecting themselves with, you know, kind of CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technologies and all this kind of stuff. And, and you know, the extreme longevity movement, you know, got a lot of people now, you know, really, really working on ways to kind of, extend uh human life you know some say you know even to the to the thousand year mark or something like that which i'm sure is not gonna happen anytime soon but there will be improvements on that score and what you've got is i think a rather creepy and a rather sinister idea that human beings are infinitely and endlessly uh malleable and that again, if you're not happy with the with the way you are, the way that you're going, you can just sort of re-engineer yourself such that you you get the body you want, or you know, you know, enhance your cognitive ability, ability with a with a new um, pharmacological preparation or something like that. I mean, you know, we're we're only in the foothills of this, um, but 
I, I do think that um, this kind of stuff is, is where we're going. If you look at sort of medication for ADHD and all that sort of thing, even, even, the, even the designation of ADHD, I'm not an expert on that by any means, but I've read some stuff on this and, you know, it, it is possible, you know, that uh, what we call ADHD is just a set of behaviours that aren't particularly um, helpful within the kind of, let's say, educational environments that we happen to favour at the moment. Well, in that case, it, it may be the educational environment that are at fault, or it may be the fact that we uh, expect everyone, you know, no matter you know, what their personality is, to, to, to warm to those um, or do well in those uh, environments. But again, it's about this reversal of the, the, the direction of fit rather than saying, okay, well, what might be going wrong with the, with the system here or the society and how can we make it better such that we can, you know, accommodate, you know, these, these people, these behaviors, these kids. What you do is you say, say, okay, well, you know, that's a condition and it needs to be treated, you know, in this way with a technology, which is to say a psychotropic medication or whatever. And, um, I think that's going to only happen more broadly as we, you know, unless we unless we begin to question technologies, you know, in the broad, and by you know, I'm not only talking about AI in this book, but about biotechnology, nanotechnology, biohacking, you know, medications, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Unless we start thinking more um, philosophically uh, about those things, then um, that's the that's the path we're on. So I guess the question that this leads on to is, what does a political response look like for those of us? who are critical of, you know, the technological progress idea of uh, making a better world, how do we organise ourselves to uh, generate enough social power to direct society in a different way? And how do we do it in a culture where uh, societal changes led by changing technology are happening very quickly to our own networks? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a really difficult question to answer. Um, and of course, you know, having, having diagnosed the problem, problem as, as I see it, uh, it is incumbent upon me to, to say something practical about what we do. Look, I think from a political, um, point of view, um, climate change is absolutely key. And I hope this doesn't sound too Pollyanna-ish, but, you know, there, there is an opportunity here, um, to think about this thing is coming down the way it's, it's already upon us. Let's face it, that, you know, quite a bit, and it's only going to get worse. I think the the literature is um, is changing such that green growth solutions are giving way to what are sometimes called degrowth solutions. Now, in my terms, what that entails uh, is social and political innovation rather than just technological innovation. So we have. If, if we're progressives and if we want to uh, change the, you know, change the society, not only to, you know, build a sustainable planet, but, but actually change the society such that we, we have more meaningful lives and, and a fairer distribution of resources, then uh, we have, we have, if you like, an opportunity to say, okay, so how, what, what could we do such that uh, we could both meet or somewhat meet um, this emergency? of climate change, but also reorganize uh, social and economic life such that uh, we do have those more fulfilling lives. And that involves, you know, a lot of local initiatives, things like 
tool sharing and repair cafes. Uh, it also involves getting into the education system and thinking about what kind of education system we want. It's not just about, you know, using computers less. I mean, the use of computers in schools is now ubiquitous and, and for me, just an intolerable levels to be honest but it's justified on the basis that that is you know what that what the kids are going to be doing in future well it's their future okay so to some extent ideally anyway they get to decide what future um they should have well that that's how it should be so you know you need to give them a broad understanding of of life how to work on their houses how to grow veggies their local ecologies all that kind of stuff you know such that they can can have a different relationship with the world than the one that Silicon Valley wants them to have. And then there's the bigger stuff, of course, like, you know, bringing sectors into social ownership and all that sort of things, such that you no longer have the energy sector, for example, in private hands, but in social hands. Uh, so it's at different levels. There's the personal, you can do stuff at the personal level, you do stuff at the community level, you can do stuff at the institutional level, but there's also the big picture philosophical stuff as well. It's just about talking about it and arguing for it and maybe uh, things will open. Thanks, Richard, and I'm sure there's many other things that we could talk about, but we'll have to save them for another time. But would you like to give a final plug for your book? Yes, please. Um, it's, a, it's called Here Be Monsters. Is Technology Reducing Our Humanity? It's published by Monash University uh, Publishing. Um, it's not a, it's not an academic title, I should say. It's for the general reader, it's for the non-specialist, and it's available at all fine bookstores and hopefully, hopefully some um, disreputable ones as well. All right. Thanks very much, Richard. All right. Thanks, Andy. That is Richard King there. You've been listening to him over the last hour, chatting about a variety of different topics about technology and um, I think important questions asked as well. I'm always happy to find people writing or talking about ideas critical of just a blind acceptance of technological change um, and as well, I guess, trying to analyse what does technological change actually mean and how are us humans affected by it Um, because, you know, we have a lot of subconscious effects on humans that we don't always have the time and space and kind of ability to critically think about. And so these are very important questions, I think, for us to ask. There's obviously technology has been changing rapidly for hundreds of years now, but in my lifetime I've witnessed very significant technological technological changes that I think have led to changes in uh, the way we relate to other people, the way we relate to ourselves, our kind of our ontological selves, and the way we interact as a broader society. And maybe some of these changes are for the good. No doubt some of them are for the good. Maybe they're not all for the good, and so it's worth thinking about these kind of things. So we'll keep trying to do that on the paradigm shift. Obviously, we're always trying to look at all aspects of our society critically and ask what can we do uh, better for the flourishing of human beings and for our planet as a whole. See you next week.